Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday, the actuality news show, offering unique insights and in-depth analysis, featuring South Africa's top business leaders, newsmakers, and analysts for today's professionals. Your host, Jeremy Metz. Live every weekday at noon and then as a podcast, you're with MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Maggs. I've got 30 minutes of express news on developments here in South Africa and around the world, including interviews with business and political leaders, prominent newsmakers and top commentators. Today's program is sponsored by Peregrine Capital, South Africa's first fund to reach more than 100 times your investment since inception. It's Thursday, the 26th of October, and coming up on the program, the climate change bill is signed and passed. The Environment Minister is with us shortly. Is this going to make any real difference in a carbon-intensive economy? A delay in the two-pot retirement system is called for. We'll give you some expert analysis. The latest Consumer Financial Vulnerability Index is painting a worrying picture, and questions are raised over the KwaZulu-Natal government's 28 million rand South African Music Awards sponsorship offer and subsequent withdrawal. In what's been called a significant step towards tackling the climate crisis, the National Assembly has now passed the climate change bill. What's its aim, you ask? Well, to establish a comprehensive legal and institutional framework that will guide the nation's response, aligning with the principles of sustainable development and cooperative governance. The Environment Minister is Barbara Creasy. She's with us now on MoneyWeb at Midday. And what immediate benefits, then, do you anticipate? Yes, I think that the most important issue is that we finally have a legal instrument that can allow every level of government to respond to the climate crisis, firstly by building resilience to the impacts of climate change, and secondly by facilitating an orderly method through which we can reduce our emissions And obviously reducing our emissions is part of South Africa's contribution to reducing greenhouse gases in ways that are appropriate to our national circumstances and our development pathways. Minister, there is one school of thought that says we might have left this too late to effectively combat the climate crisis. The bill, of course, needs to therefore accelerate efforts. How is it going to do that? I think that as far as uh, dealing with questions of adaptation, which is building resilience to the inevitable effects of climate change, even in a 1.5 average degree temperature increase, what the bill does is it makes it a requirement that all levels of government have to work together to develop policies and plans to respond to the climate crisis. Obviously, once that happens, it then becomes possible to mainstream these plans and policies in government budgeting processes so that we allocate money for building climate resilience in agriculture, for infrastructure, for health. But what it also does is it sets up a whole architecture to implement our nationally determined contribution to reducing greenhouse gases. So we will have sectoral emission targets for 
different sectors of industry that would guide us on our journey to um, our mid-century net zero emissions commitment. But it would also allocate carbon budgets to individual industries. And this would help to curb emissions and make sure that the economy as a whole is working towards reducing our greenhouse gas emissions. Minister, let me suggest two possible obstacles in all of this. One is the difficulty in forcing this issue higher up the agenda, given the developmental and infrastructural challenges that this country has. And the second one is the capacity to enforce. Well, let me deal with the second one first. I think I've already spoken about the fact that up until now, all the work that we've done has been on a, a voluntary basis. So industry is already working with us on voluntarily and obviously confidentially disclosing emissions and working towards aligning their production processes with carbon budgets. What the bill will do is it will make it a, a legislative requirement. But I think that the, the issue you raised about our developmental trajectory is a very important issue. One of the arguments that South Africa has been putting forward in the international climate negotiations is that countries shouldn't have to choose between building climate resilience and meeting the sustainable development goals. They should be able to do both. And obviously what that requires is significant resources. There have been very big estimates made that that the African continent, for example, to build climate resilience by the mid-2030s would need several trillion U.S. dollars. And we know that the climate finance that is available at the moment is nowhere near those kinds of numbers. And I think that's why our president and our minister of finance and indeed myself in all international forums have been arguing that there needs to be a fundamental transformation of the international financial system so that developing countries and indeed, Mm. like ourselves, many of those are heavily indebted, have new ways that they can access affordable finance without placing undue burden on future generations. How are you going to deal with resistance within your own government, given that you have a minerals minister who is openly pro-coal? Look, I think that the reason that our country has submitted a nationally determined contribution to the UNFCCC is that that sets a, a target for countrywide emission reductions. And all of us would have to find ways in which we can meet that target. I think what we do know is that coal will remain part of our energy mix for some time to come. The Minister of Energy has indicated that he will be shortly releasing the new integrated resource plan. And we know that already there is an increasing diversity in our energy mix. And I think that we are looking forward to the release of that integrated resource plan. And obviously, once we see it, we would then be in a position to see whether it is compatible with our nationally determined contribution that the country has submitted to the UNFCCC. And if it's not compatible, you're in trouble. Well, then we'll have to discuss that eventuality when we reach there. But what are you expecting? Are you expecting some degree of compatibility there? 
Look, we know that already there are about 10 gigawatts of renewable energy that that are in the pipeline um, as a result of embedded generation and independent power producer projects. I think what we know is holding back some of that work is investment in our transmission capability. And there is work going on at the moment in government to try and look at how we can utilize finances that are available to improve transmission capacity so that we can get more renewables on the grid. We also know that gas is an important transition enabler and we are expecting that there should be allocations for gas power in the integrated resource Mm. plan. So we are expecting both more renewables and more gas in the integrated resource plan. I'm going to leave it there. Environment Minister Barbara Creasy, thank you very much for joining us on MoneyWeb at Midday. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. Let's continue with this now. National Treasury wants the implementation of the so-called two-pot retirement system, which would allow people to access one-third of their pension savings before retirement, to be delayed by a year to give the savings and investment industry, and I quote, more time to grapple with the complex task of administering the changes. Let's give you a perspective now with Vicky Langer, Head of Best Practice at Alex Forbes. Vicky, first of all, in principle and very briefly, the two-pot idea, is it a good one? Does it have advantages? Yeah, good afternoon, Jeremy, and to your and, and you know, just a hello out there to your listeners as well. So in general, yes, um, the two-part system is definitely a good one. You know, in South Africa, um, members are generally not retiring with good outcomes. You know, the, the widely quoted statistic out there is that only about 6% of South Africans can actually afford to retire. So there is some debate right now, if I'm not mistaken, about the amount of money that will be allowed to be accessed. Just amplify that for me a little bit. And why is this an issue? Right. So what has been proposed um, in terms of the two pot system is that there would be a savings pot and a retirement pot. The retirement pot has to uh, remain uh, preserved and invested up until the time of retirement, at which point someone will have to, the member would have to annuitize that amount. The amount going into the savings component, which would be about one third of contributions or will be one third of contributions, um, would be accessible by members, you know, once in a tax year. Now there's the seed capital proposal um, that has been announced by Treasury as part of the draft bill and also reiterated through the parliamentary process um, as early as yesterday. That seed capital being 10% of uh, members saved up values up until the 28th of uh, February 2025, and uh, but it's limited to a maximum of 30,000 Rand. Now the main challenge um, with obviously withdrawing these amounts is that it does affect um, you know, the cash that's available to the members one day when they do retire, it reduces the cash availability. It also reduces the retirement income for the members, um, you know, once they've actually retired. In addition to that, any amounts taken out um, is subject to marginal tax rates as well. So we do obviously understand, you know, that the financial distress out there is quite significant and, and many members you know, needing to get access to some cash. But important to keep in mind that taking money out of a retirement fund does come with 
you know, consequences that members really do need to think about before they, they go about doing that. And my understanding is the system isn't doing enough then to encourage individuals to maintain a significant balance in that retirement pot. Surely that's a problem. Sure. So, and, and that's one of the reasons for these reforms. Um, so at the moment, the, the key challenge we have in the South African retirement system is that on resignation, on retrenchment, um, members are able to take everything in their retirements out, uh, retirement funds out in cash. Um, and do as they please with that. So in other words, not necessarily keeping it there for a retirement purpose. Um, and because of this um, issue, uh, members are then, you know, subject to these um, poor retirement outcomes mm. at the end of the day. So these reforms are really important because it requires that members from a future date, so the proposed effect, new proposed effective date is March 25. And so from that date onwards, new contributions, up to two-thirds of that um, must be, or at least a minimum rather, of two-thirds of that amount must be kept invested up until the point of retirement. Just by doing that, we will see an improvement in retirement outcomes by up to two to two and a half times the current retirement system. Um, and so that is the, the fundamental you know, shift and change that will actually happen through these reforms. Do you agree with the assertion from National Treasury then that more time is needed to, again, I quote, grapple with the complex task of administering the changes? Right. So very important is that systems and processes need to be updated uh, by retirement fund administrators. And we do need certainty in terms of legislation um, and, and preferably final legislation. Uh, before all those final changes can be made. So although we've done a lot of work um, at Alex Forbes progressing things based on draft legislation, at the end of the day, we still need that final um, to make sure everything is done correctly, properly, we're well prepared so that we can then actually go ahead and be able to pay out, um, you know, the seed capital for members who, who require that money at the time. So, you know, the, the extra time is needed to make sure that this is done properly. I mean, we would be dealing with people's money here, so we need to make sure that it is done in a very responsible way. Mm, but year's a long time, though. Agree, agree. It is a year. Um, it is unfortunate. I mean, in the ideal, I think it would have been great if the legislation had been finalized early this year, um, because then we would have been in a position, you know, to, to go ahead with a March 24, I think. So... Yeah, unfortunately, a lot of dependency on final legislation to actually enable all of this in the, at the end of the day. Vicky Langer, thank you very much indeed from Alex Forbes. MoneyWeb at Midday for all your up-to-date stories. Well, leading on from that, consumer finances in South Africa are still in a sorry state, but many people are still making so-called feel-good purchases. According to the latest Consumer Financial Vulnerability Index, it comes from Momentum along with UNISA, cyclical factors have kept consumer finances fragile in Q3 2023, but structural issues have become the main problem to uh, dealing with consumer finance. A little bit more now from Johan van Tonde. He is Senior Economist and Researcher at Momentum. And first up, we're not in a good space as consumers right now, are we? We are increasingly vulnerable. Yes, unfortunately, we've been vulnerable for a very, very long time now. I think my memory serves me correctly. For in the past, almost say, even before COVID, the index was below the 
50 mark for uh, 95% of the time. Now, that's bad. And the good news, if I may call it good news, because it's actually still bad, is that it's crept over the 50 mark in the third quarter of 2023, up to 50.9 points from 49.3 in the second quarter. So it's a little bit better, but it's still bad, if I can put it that way. What's the main issue that is concerning consumers right now? Well, the main, if we can look at the risks, the main risks, it's been high fuel and food prices and load shedding, the top three for just about almost since uh, COVID and uh, going forward. But what we've noted, and those risks, if I can put it that way, it's more cyclical risk, except for load shedding. In other words, high inflation, higher interest rates, and so on. That's cyclical factors. But what's crept in now in the third quarter, we've seen the structural factors coming through as the main risks. And the main risk in the third quarter was load shedding, uh, number one, followed by political instability and corruption. And only then we saw the cyclical factors coming through. And then in the fourth instance, unemployment, poverty, and inequality. So these are the things that's bothering consumers and it's affecting their finances to the degree that they're still feeling very vulnerable and they can't really do what they want to do or just make a living. And Johan, those structural issues that you refer to are all big items. Uh, it's inevitable that this trajectory is going to continue for the short to medium term, which means, I guess, that uh, consumers are going to remain more vulnerable for the time being. Yes, you're absolutely right. In fact, what we've seen in the forecast, the risk factor forecast for the fourth quarter, unemployment, poverty and inequalities jump to the top risk. So what's happening is that the cyclical risks, basically, they're not fading. They're still there and they're still very high risk factors. It's just that unemployment, poverty and inequalities Mm. become an even higher risk than those. And that's what happens if the economy fails to grow appropriately and stronger and we can't get more employment and less unemployment to a very large scale because that's what we need, large employment. And only then when you get to that stage where we can start employing like a million people per year, you, when it's only then when we'll see the structural factors becoming less of a risk. But otherwise, as long as it continues, it's, as you say, it's going to mm. be the consumer is going to remain vulnerable. Of some concern as well in the report is that consumers are unable to add more to retirement savings. And whichever way you look at it, that really does uh, increase or exacerbate vulnerability, doesn't it? Yes, it does. We specifically ask about uh, what do you say for emergencies, for retirement and so forth. And in this quarter or the third quarter, they were able to save more for emergencies compared to the second quarter and first quarters. But 
there's no room for additional retirement uh, funding or even catching up on retirement funding going forward. So that's very concerning, especially if we take into account that it's it's just around about 6 million people that uh, save for retirement. And if they can't do it properly, then it means when they come to retirement, they will still not have enough money just to continue with a specific standard of living. You know, there's an old school of thought, I guess, which says that in hard times, people will still want to look after themselves. They will look after, they will look for little things to make them happier. And noteworthy in the report is an increase in what you call feel-good purchases in Q3 this year. What are we talking about? Yeah, that was an interesting one because the report also measures um, consumers' behavior and on a psychological level as well. So what we've seen and what the key informants told us was that basically having been in the doldrums for such a long period, so what normally happens once in a while is that consumers would just go out and buy something to make them feel better because they're just in a very, very vulnerable state for such a long time. But normally what the psychologist also tells us, they wouldn't just go out and buy anything at any point in time. It might happen when they say, for example, get an unexpected bonus or so on. They won't save it. They will go out and they will buy something to make them feel better just for a while. I suppose that is human nature, isn't it? Johan van Tonder, Senior Economist, Researcher at Momentum, thank you very much for the insight. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. Now, in a statement that we received this morning, the Encarta Freedom Party in KwaZulu-Natal says it welcomes an announcement by the province's MEC for Economic Development and Tourism that no funding is going to be allocated to the Sama Awards, the South African Music Awards, and the figure that was being bandied around was something to the, in the region of around 28 million rand. Let's explore that in a little bit more detail from the IFP in the province. Les Govender, welcome and thank you very much for joining us. Let me put to you that the fact that it was even considered in the first place, the sponsorship, is a problem in itself. Yeah, good afternoon, uh, Jeremy, uh, to you and your and your listeners. Yeah, you know, what we find very strange is that, you know, such a huge amount is being allocated towards a, a music award. Now, you know, we need to make it very clear that we are not against, uh, uh, you know, the promotion of, uh, you know, performing arts and especially, you know, the music, music industry. Uh, you know, we appreciate the talents that are out there. But to allocate such a huge amount from the Department of economic development and tourism, when we have, uh, you know, many pressing needs, you know, within uh, the KZN community, uh, you know, that is why we believe that this uh, money should not have been allocated uh, towards uh, a glitz and glamour event. Rather, it should be channeled towards, uh, you know, taking care of the needs of the, of the poor people in our, in our province. What's more concerning, Mr. Governor, is that my understanding is it was done without any consultation. Yes, you know, I serve on the Portfolio Committee of Economic Development and Tourism. And uh, this, this, uh, this issue was not brought to us. 
And, uh, uh, you know, we know that there was no uh, consultation with the portfolio committee in terms of allocating, uh, even if they, even if the MEC is 20, saying 20 million plus, uh, plus that, you know, it never came to us. And, uh, you know, we, we must be mindful of the fact that, uh, these are, these are, uh, you know, public funds and they are, and they are controlled in terms of the Public Finance Management Act. So you cannot just be moving funds from one program to another without proper consultation and following due process. How did you find out about it in the first place? Well, firstly, it was it was out in the media uh, that uh, that that this amount was the you know was being earmarked for this uh, for this project, and um, immediately it it raised alarm bells because uh, you know this was something that we never you know discussed even at the portfolio committee level. So that is why, uh, you know, immediately we began, uh, you know, looking into it and, uh, and we found that it was really, really, you know, wasteful expenditure on our part if, uh, if, that, if that amount was actually paid out to, uh, uh, to the summer awards. So if this issue hadn't been raised publicly, conceivably the money would have been allocated and nobody would have been any, any the wiser? Well, that is what happens, you know, so often we find that, you know, uh, public funds are used and it is only, uh, you know, uh, after the event that, uh, that, that we get to know. And, you know, worst case scenario, we only get to know after the Auditor General has done, has done her work. And then we find ex post facto that, uh, that we get to know about, uh, you know, such, uh, such wasteful expenditure. But, but by then it is too late. And, uh, you know, for the, for the MEC to now say that, uh, you know, he has consulted widely and in the interest of fiscal discipline, he has decided against it. I mean, surely the fiscal discipline should have been taken into account when he was even thinking about allocating this money. So, uh, you know, there are there are dubious things that that are that have been going on within this department, and uh, you know that is why you'll see in our statement we are saying that there's a need for an urgent uh, portfolio committee meeting where the MEC can come and explain himself. So what questions are you going to ask? Well, we are going to ask, you know, how did this decision come about? You know, who took this decision? And give us a breakdown as to exactly how this money was going to be spent. And, uh, and uh, you know, if, if due process was uh, followed, because we know that there is a Treasury instruction that uh, all the, uh, you know, projects need to be scaled down so that, you know, we curtail, uh, you know, this kind of expenditure. And, um, you know, his decision actually goes against that uh, you know the treasury instruction 28 million rand is a lot of money but just for argument's sake let's give the mec uh, the benefit of the doubt it is also within your specific area of of, of expertise and responsibility that uh, money is allocated for tourism and economic development uh, events like the Sama awards are high profile it could have shone a spotlight on the province um, what type of events do you think should be focused on as far as the provincial government is concerned or is something like this completely out the ballpark no, uh, no, they they do have a mandate to encourage this sort of uh, you know artistic talents and you know even uh, you know any other uh, tourism attractions that will that will benefit uh, you know the province uh, and its citizens. But initially, we were told that there was an amount of eight million that was that was uh, budgeted towards towards this event, which we didn't have a problem with. So that would have been acceptable, eight million. But all of a sudden, it's twenty-eight million. 
well, yeah, it's 20 million or 28 million. You know, you know, the MEC is playing around with that figure. He now says it, 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 it was 20 million plus VAT. Now, uh, we know that initially it was an amount of 8 million. Well, how it suddenly jumps up by, you know, over 12 million rand, uh, you, know, you know, those are the kind of questions that we, that we will be asking, you know, to prevent this sort of thing from happening again. Is this urgent portfolio committee meeting going to go ahead or are you just wishing that it's going to happen? Well, we've, uh, we've sent a message to the portfolio committee chairperson also, uh, you know, for him to call a meeting. I don't know, you know, if that's going to happen anytime soon, but we will be pushing forward it. You've also suggested that uh, this is one issue, that there are bigger problems within that department. Yes, you know, we find that uh, the, the previous head of department uh, he suddenly left without any explanation. Nobody knows where he's gone to, why he suddenly left. And in our view, he was doing a good job. Um, uh, I don't know if, uh, uh, you know, this sort of uh, uh, expenditure that came up all of a sudden is one of the reasons that he has left uh, because it happened just about three weeks ago. And um, we find that there are, you know, other entities within the department um, you know, such as the example of KZN Wildlife, where there's been numerous changes to the Board of Management. And, uh, you know, for the past 10 years, there have been, uh, you know, squabbles within that mm. board. And we find that, uh, you know, we were told at a portfolio committee meeting uh, that uh, the, uh, there have been, uh, you know, assets uh, from, from, that, from that entity that have, uh, that have been uh, within, within inverted commas borrowed by, you know, members of staff, but nobody knows where it has gone to. So, you know, there are various other entities where there are such, uh, you know, such issues, uh, you know, of accountability, uh, and that is unacceptable. And, and uh, you know, those are some of the issues that we will be questioning. All right, Les Governor, thank you very much indeed from the Encarta Freedom Party in KwaZulu-Natal. And in the interests of balance and fairness, we will reach out to the office of the KwaZulu-Natal MEC for Economic Development, Tourism and Environmental Affairs uh, to get their side of the story. The invitation is open. Other stories on our radar as we close the program today. Springbok hooker Bongi Mbunambi is free to play in Saturday's Rugby World Cup final. You'll recall that he faced a racism allegation that was aired against him by England's Tom Curry. And after respite of some days, stage one load shedding will be implemented from this afternoon, according to a statement we've just received from ESCOM. Today's program, sponsored by Peregrine Capital, invest in 25 years of performance. Invest at peregrine.co.za today. Peregrine Capital is an authorised financial service provider. T's and C's apply. MoneyWeb at midday. We are live at noon weekdays and then as a podcast. Goodbye to you and thank you for listening. Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at midday or download episodes on moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.